0: like you already got everything you need to make this journey you already know it's in your hands it's in your body it's in your head you know all these gifts that were you were endowed with to make it
1: that my friends is becca stevens our friend and the author of the new book practically divine i am very excited for y'all to hear becca stevens back on the podcast when it comes to faith one of the things that inspires me the most is to look around and to see the people with whom I'm on the same team. Becca is definitely one of those people. CNN a few years ago named her one of their Heroes of the Year because of the work that Pistol Farms organization does to help women coming out of abuse and trafficking and uh, incarceration. It is just a, a wonderful thing. I encourage you to take a minute and Google, look them up, see what they're doing. Uh, it, it's a great organization. It's inspiring. And uh, she's a brilliant person. She's a priest. Uh, she's an author. She, she has uh, founded this great organization. And uh, you're just going to love to hear from her. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, her new book, which is Practically divine. She has the audiobook up on Audible or wherever you listen to audiobooks. Um, I would highly encourage you to listen to this one. Like uh, Suzanne Stabile's book on the Enneagram, like get a hard copy of that. Like you're going to want to like take notes and scribble stuff in it. Um, when you hear Becca Stevens telling some of the stories that she tells in this book with her own voice, it just makes it like, uh, like all, the, all the better. So um, go check out the book and uh, without further ado, check out uh, our friend Becca Stevens back from the podcast. Here
2: we go. Did you ever run track? Ish, what was your event?
0: The mile in junior high school and got lapped by a woman named Margaret Gross, who ended up qualifying for the Olympics. And that's when she... pretty good. A mile race getting lapped. Can you imagine? I got lapped <laughs> yeah, I in a mile race.
2: I mean, there's four laps. So that's like, th- that gives you a lot of potential, like to, to be, to be lapped.
0: Hey, your okay. camera just went
2: off. Well, I, there's something about the internet quality issues. The, the recording's still working, but like it's going to pop right back on in a second. Okay. So just like just like um, Jesus, I'm leaving you with something greater. You have the audio, <laughs> but you're on the video. Okay, we're going to start. Friends, you know who's on the podcast today. This is our beloved friend, Becca Stevens. Welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and to almost see your beautiful
1: face. It,
2: okay, so the app like shuts down like the video when the internet quality is questionable, but it's going to come back on. So don't don't worry, don't fret. We will be back together very soon. Um, Becca, I learned something recently about you that I didn't know. Math major in college. Mm. Mm. True or false? True or false? Math True.
0: major. True. Phi Beta Kappa math major.
2: Wow. Yeah, um, and
0: I can't do any math.
2: It's. It seems that that's one of the requirements for being a math major.
0: I don't dare know. dare. I say it
2: doesn't add up if you can't.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about this though? Because now it's okay. not math; it's software that holds you up to do math. And if you can't figure out the software, it doesn't. It doesn't help you. Like nobody, math theory or math systems aren't even interesting in like day-to-day work life in the same way. I think it's better. It helps. My math major helps me out more in my theology than in my work as an entrepreneur.
2: Okay. I'm going to ask a follow-up question of that. How, how so? <laughs> huh? How, how does your math help you in your theology?
0: Well, you know, you think about math being a universal language and love being a universal language and how that helps <clears throat> excuse me, it gets me choked up thinking about it. Just yeah, judging. I know it's
2: emotional. It's very it's emotional. emotional. talking but about
0: But no, but it's like they say music, math, theology, these universal languages that translate beyond borders. So numbers, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world and you can see the number, even if you can't <sighs> speak that language.
2: Yeah. It's just like an in interstellar where Matthew McConaughey has traveled through the fourth dimension. He's trying to communicate to his daughter and he's using like the math little line things. And so, What that tells me is not only if you go through different cultures, but different spheres of reality, your math will enable you to talk to people.
0: Yeah, that's really where I was going with this, is that hoping that we could just go ahead and move straight into the alternative forms of reality for the listeners.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, time travel, I think, is something that's near and dear uh, to (laughs) to both of our hearts.
0: Oh, my gosh. Ask me a question about my book.
2: (laughs) you weren't even dancing around like you're just like hey let's just get to (laughs) it okay i would because i definitely want to talk about your book because what (laughs) i really want to do is i would like to empower you
0: thank you that's my favorite word thank you so much next to interstellar traveling empowering is my favorite thing to do no thank you for mentioning that word that is my
2: trigger it's a but we're not triggered, we're uncovered.
0: <laughs> yes, oh my gosh, you have read the book. That is crazy, Luke.
2: Yep. I'm actually you would paying not attention. I can't
0: believe how many people wanna have like they just have the questions. They've never read the book and there's really no conversation. You're a gift. You're a gift
2: to this uh, world. Okay, well it all goes downhill from here. Um <laughs> But yeah, that does kinda happen, and I have this conversation kind of regularly because it seems to be the norm. I had a uh uh, when my first book came out a couple years ago, I did an interview, and someone clearly didn't prepare, and I was rude. Like, I was not nice to them. <laughs> I was just like, I'm, I am i don't know if I was triggered or uncovered, but one of the things that I'm allowed to say happened to me, and I was just like, y- w- why am I here? Like, you just, w- what are we doing? Anyway, so I respect your time, so w- we can talk about this book. Um, <sighs> there's a lot to get to. Let's talk about the word... Um, uh, empowered. So here's a story in the book where you have a gentleman who, is, a gentleman, right? It was a guy mm-hmm. who was applying for a job. And uh, I, like I imagine he's from the Midwest. I think he is. He should be, if not. Um, you don't have to correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong. But he's applying for this job. I guess it was like marketing or something like that. And so he's being interviewed by you and uh, there's probably some tea out. I, I smell lavender in the, area, in the air. And at one point the question like, you know, why do you want to do this comes up? And he says and I quote, I want to empower women. Which end quote? Many people think like, "Well, that's a nice thing. I'm trying to be generous. I'm trying to use you know whatever I can to like elevate and to give power to someone else." But you don't like the word empower. I don't. You, Do you like want me the to tell word
0: you are. Yep. Yeah. Tell me why. Well, here's the thing: is that I said to him, "I was like, don't you think it's it's kind of interesting that women who." You know, came off the streets and out of prison, started this company called Thistle Farms, making bath and body care projects, growing into the largest justice enterprise in the U.S. And we're interviewing you for a job. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, we're empowering you. But I think sometimes the whole thing of somebody saying I'm going to empower you means they assume they have the power and they're giving you a little bit of it, but probably not Mm -hmm. as much as they think they have. And to me, it just feels like, you know, I am empowered. I have autonomy and I have a voice. You know, I don't need somebody to give me a voice to empower me. They can amplify it. They can support. They can do all kinds of things. But especially for women who are survivors, the idea of somebody saying, I have more power than you is very much, um, you know, reason to kind of step back a little bit and get a little bit nervous.
2: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really appreciate about you, Becca, is the pronoun usage you used when you told that story now and also in the book, where you said, we have built this company, uh, we have done this, we have done this, and now we are hiring you. Uh, The pronouns that you used uh, connect you not to you as like CEO, founder, person in charge of it, that kind of person, but it's you're one of the women who's a part of this, and it's not like you started this and then there are these women who've come alongside of you to help you, but like, it's y'all together. And I, like, I'm not going to get you to say, oh yes, that's because that's how I see the world. But like, that is an observation I quickly made when I was listening to you say that uh, as I listened to the book. Um, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, some people would not kind of go that direction, I think, but I, I appreciate that you go that direction where it's we, not, not like me or them or us, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And I just, I mean, and I only say it because it's the truth, you know, I mean, seriously, like the first person yeah. who was the, you know, production coordinator, the first person that was a salesperson, the first person that was a marketing person, those were all women who had gone through the residential program at Thistle Farms and did things much differently and better than I ever would have. So I'm, you know, all along, it's been a communal vision and it's grown because it is a we thing. So I really, I really mean it. And I'm, thank you for saying it was, that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, no. I. Yeah. So the gentleman though, let me take his side. I think he's trying to like do something, um, positive. Like he's trying to say, and I think his words obviously, uh, uh, Kind of speak to maybe uh, an unawareness, uh, like an ignorance of like the reality of things, and so y- you have better language that you prefer. It's not like empowering women, but like was it shifting power? Is that the language you want to use? That's perfect. That's perfect. But I'm
0: saying, and I was nice to him. I promise you, I was nice to him. I'm not in general mean to people's faces. I'm just
2: <laughs> behind their back. Behind well, the back, ah, you forget are about it. Forget about ruthless. It.
0: No, I'm saying that I wasn't, I was just using that as an example of how it's okay for us to challenge language. It's Mm -hmm. okay for us. If, if, if language isn't serving the purpose, it needs to get rid of it. So if empowering is not working for women who have, in some ways, people have stripped power from, then let's quit using it. And also, you know, that's true across the board is what part of what I hope we're doing with this movement of Thistle Farms is like, we're challenging language, we are challenging systems, we are challenging cultures that still keep secrets, we're challenging markets um, that don't serve producers well, we want to challenge things so that we all can get healthier. I mean, I've had to change a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm still having to change, you know, every five years, we change the language about how we describe women who have gone through these events. You know, maybe at one point they were just prostitutes. Then they were trafficked. Now they're part of um, commercial sexual exploitation. Now they're gender-based violence. They're victims. They're survivors. We keep changing the language because we keep trying to get closer to um, what people feel like they want to wear as a label or how they want to challenge that label. But I think there's nothing wrong with challenging words and languages I use or you use.
2: Well, especially as like, people who preach and people who write, yeah. like l- language is like a, the currency in which we, we deal. But also language shapes our experience of the world that when we def- describe and define what's happening, we are ultimately changing our experience of those things. And so if, if we use the language of I'm empowering you, meaning I have power, I'm going to kind of lift you up, um, not high as me, but like I'm going to give you like a couple steps up, uh, which is language that I've used a lot, um, kind of oblivious to what you've described. But instead, if I'm going to go, I'm going to shift power, which means I'm going to not just like pick you up with my excess power, but I'm going to like empty myself of power. I'm going to enter this sort of like Philippians 2 Christ Him, the sort of like uh, the emptying of power um, that God models for us in the person of Jesus. Like, th- that's a different move. Like, that's calling us to something bigger and more more um, expansive than just, like, empowering someone else.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, what you're saying is so powerful and saying that's a theological exercise, too. You know, it's yeah. how we relate to God and how we understand the language of God in our faith. Um, you know, and I think that's the thing that I've been dealing with for so long is, like, how do we marry our lives with our faith, like our work with our faith, our spending with our faith? And I've been more and more leaning towards this whole thing of when we are challenging the market, that's an act of faith. It is yeah. like saying your value is different than the whole world is telling you your value is, especially, you know, a poor rural woman that they say is worth, you know, it's 45 percent of, you know, all workers in the world, according to the UN or whatever, I mean, it's a huge number. And it's like when the world devalues that piece of us, that's a theological statement. And so to challenge that and to say we have to shift power, we have to shift the market, that too is a theological endeavor.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, so I like that, the rant about empowering. Like, I appreciate it. I think it's helpful. Um, let me tell you one thing, maybe less than helpful um, I feel like you attacked my people in the book, um, explicitly podcasters mm. specifically. Um, there's a section about if it's not one thing, it's another. And mm. you said podcasts They used to be a break from work talking with a friend. Now they are the work. Um, I'm just saying like, is this just work for you? Like, are you just checking a box right now to talk to me?
0: Specifically, this podcast is work for me right now.
2: Wow. Yep. Yeah.
0: no this I, is my joy you you okay. luke are a joy in my life i love i keep saying like a theologian stand-up is the perfect combination
2: Okay. but
0: there are seasons where you know it's like you know anybody that's doing anything has to have a podcast about it there's that season that we're going through and it won't be that way forever and it wasn't that way five years ago it's just that season that we're in You know, it used to be you had to have a blog, right? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Or back, you know, back in the early, early beginnings of humanity, it was you have to get an email list. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. how big it was. But it's just evolving and it won't be podcasting forever. It'll be something else. But, Mm -hmm. But right now that is the platform. And I was just saying that if you're doing that and it's a huge chunk of your time, what used to be kind of special and a joy feels more like work, except when you do the Luke Norseworthy okay. podcast.
2: Okay. That, I, I feel like you kind of redeemed yourself. Um <laughs> And so I was going to bring up the fact that you like glorified smoking cigarettes in the book at one point, um, uh-huh. and like you're trying to empower kids to smoke cigarettes is kind of what I felt like it was. It was one step removed from giving out like candy no, cigarettes to kids. You are totally um,
0: misrepresenting me. Let me just no. Make I'm it. not going to clear my. I'm
2: not going to. I'm not going to bring that up now, though. I was going to say I was going to talk about, it, but I'm not going to now because you said something nice.
0: I'm just about saying this all topic. I was saying when I realized early on, 25 years ago, when I was out back at one of the houses, smoking cigarettes with some of the guests in our non-smoking policy house. I realized I had a lot in common with the women I was serving and that it was a kind of um, recognition of what I already knew. But just like sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm out of step with mm-hmm. some pastors in, in the world I live in, but I have a lot in common with some of the women who are coming off the streets or out of jail.
2: Well, here's the thing, Becca. I obviously look up to you a lot. You're someone that I hold in high esteem,s and so I'm uh, like I try to imitate you a lot. And so our church is across the street from a high school, and we've got like this little <laughs> prayer garden that's kind of secluded. And some of the students walk across the street and they'll smoke various objects and items in that little secret prayer area. And so I've started to smoke with the high school kids because I felt like that's what you would want me to do, Becca.
0: That was the message. I'm so glad for your discernment in that. And honestly, you probably would get more honesty out of those kids doing that than you will when mm-hmm. you call them in your office and do your pastor voice with them.
2: Yes. Children, you are sinning against the Lord. Repent. <laughs> uh, that It doesn't always work. So there I am. I'm the 40-year-old creepy man who's smoking <laughs> with the 15-year-old... Uh, kids from across the street. So anyway, uh, that's just a new thing I'm doing in my life. Um, but we're not going to talk <laughs> about that since you said something nice about the podcast. But in the book, you're telling a story about doing one of the ubiquitous podcasts that are out there—not this one, but the other one—and uh, you had them at this like the the cafe, which I don't know if you remember, but we've done a podcast at the cafe. Uh, I do. I, yeah, I mean, kind of seems now like you invite anyone over there. Um, so at first, like <laughs> it, it was really special, um, but. You, like one of the like the anchoring kind of narratives in in the book, is a, a story of like that happens when this podcaster's there haven't showed up yet. You meet uh, who a man who turns out to be the grandson of your abuser, and it's like this powerful story uh, that most of us can't even imagine. And y- you tell the story in the book, and one of the things that y- you kind of threw as a aside in there is that you f- feel like this level of freedom to tell your story, to, n- not other people's story, but y- you have this level of freedom that like, this is part of y- your story and, and your healing and you're moving forward. Um, and so, you know, even if everyone else doesn't buy in or sign off and say, this is, yeah, I- I'm happy for the story to be told. Like you have to have the freedom to be able to share your story as a way to gain freedom. H- help me understand like, th- like the balance of that, like how, but let me kind of spoil another part of the story so you can answer this. But like you end up even referencing that in a sermon uh, soon after, and the guy turns out to actually snuck into service that Sunday when you're talking about this. What is the cathartic part for you of like telling that story and why that's so important for your like ongoing healing experience?
0: So it's important for a number of reasons. One is I do think people who are preachers have a duty to talk about what kids go through and what safety looks like and how to find a safe place within the community of that you're preaching in. Like how, mm-hmm. how are you a safe place? What does that mean? And how can people trust you? You know, the way I heard it before was if you think no one in your congregation is having an affair, that no one is addicted, that no one is gay, that means that you're not a safe pastor. Hmm. And I do think that for also abuse for especially, um, you know, sexual abuse and gender-based violence and in extreme cases, um, child child sexual abuse, that we have to learn what it means to be safe, which means people are going to share their stories. And part of how that happens is you preach those stories from the pulpit. That makes you a very safe person. Not Not in a way that's not Um, damaging to people. It has to be healing for people as it is the person who's speaking it. But I think that just saying, you know, when this is part of my history is that I was abused as a kid and I was really afraid and it started in the church and I didn't know where to go. But I found this, these refuge spaces within that community and just telling it and speaking those words from a pulpit is powerful for people. But the other thing is not just as a pastor, but as an individual, I think like not everybody needs to tell their story in the same way, but people need to be free to own their story and to share it. The idea is that at some point the story doesn't control you, but you control that story. Mm -hmm. And for me, at least being able to have the freedom to control that story is important. And um, I will say though, it's very funny that I can be as old as I am. And that story can be as old as that story is. And it's still wild not to tell not to tell the story of the abuse when I was six to nine years old. That um, I'm fairly used to telling that story. You know, it still, um, to me, has a lot of value in that story. But what's interesting to me is when the grandson came into the light, back into the this well, when he came into the story and then got so angry with me, Um, like, I haven't talked to him, you know, since COVID. And I think it still makes me nervous. Like, I wonder if he'll get a hold of this book and then I'm going to be in trouble again. Like, I could still mm. go back to it. And I think that's crazy.
2: Why do you think you still go back to it?
0: Well, I think I just hate for people to be angry. I hate for people to be threatening like all of us do. And I don't want to cause a big thing. It's just part of my story and I have a right to tell it. But I also realize that it is, um, hard for some people to receive that story. I mean, it very much involves his, um, family and where he came from and he's trying to protect it. And I get that.
2: Yeah. Brene Brown has this line where she says, um, something about like, I'm not ready to tell my story to you if your reception of the story affects my recovery from the story.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Like I'm not at a point where I can be vulnerable about this until no matter how you respond to it, like I'm still going to be okay. Does that ring true to you?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's what we practice all the time at Thistle Farms is how do we how do you tell a story where you're not exploited and how you're not exploiting anybody else? How do you tell a story where it feels healing to you to hear it and healing for me to tell it? So what does that look like? And you know, I have tons of examples for me of what that looks like. Um, you know, I remember, you know, my dear friend in Rwanda, Nicholas, who, who I got to see two weeks ago in California. It was a big gift. I hadn't seen him since COVID. And you know, we were walking through the geranium fields where we harvest geranium, make bug spray that is amazing. And I just said, God, Nicholas, you know, what are the chances that you and I would end up friends out in the middle of a geranium field Mm -hmm. in Rwanda sharing stories about what we've gone through? And he said, it was inevitable. And what what I took him to mean by that is that if I am on this journey to learn how to do healing work, injustice with you know creativity with women with all these things, and he's on that journey, we were going to meet, like you and I were probably going to meet. Yeah. And I think that sense that that makes you friends, and then you become pretty safe to share that story with. I mean, it's not hard for me to have a conversation with you or Nicholas. I feel like. We hear each other. It's um, full of humor and love and compassion. And that's when you know it's like, I'm ready. I'm I'm happy to talk about anything with you. But I do not feel that way mm, so much of the time. And I think that's the heartbreaking part when we lose that sense of community is we're not in that space. And so all we're going to do is just argue points. We're not going to share story.
2: That's such a good point. When we're arguing, it's a good point, and then I'm going to say it. it's a good point to not argue points. That was a terrible sentence. Um, but I think that's a great observation, that when we lose the ability to listen to stories, we've lost the ability to connect to one another. We've lost the ability to have empathy and connection. I, I-, I love your concept about it's inevitable. Yeah, your friend from Rwanda, The other exa- one of the other examples you give in the book is y- your dad died— um, In a drunk driving accident, a drunk driving driver hit him, and he was leaving a house call as a pastor. And the house that he was leaving, there was a couple that he was helping with their marriage. They have a young daughter. Uh, Fast forward decades later, your mom is uh, at, at the end of her life. She's passing away, and the nurse that she happens to receive care from was actually the child of the family that your dad was helping and you said, of course, that was inevitable that we would meet. That is a, an amazingly beautiful story.
0: I know, isn't that, it's, it's so, it's like when you think your world's spinning out of control, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, I can walk through this. I can do this. That's a sign. You know, yeah. one of my oldest pastor friends in, that I've had since, you know, I started my ministry 30 years ago says, pray for a sign and keep going. Mm. And 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 that was a big sign in a beautiful you know, time when you think, God, the world's spinning out of control and then it's just it's and you know, can you imagine a kinder person to take care of your mother than somebody that helped save her own family? Her husband, you know, whose yeah. husband helped save her own family when she was a little kid and she grew up to mm. heal people. Oh my God, I love it.
2: That's yeah, that's such a beautiful story. Um Okay, can we circle back to conversation at uh, the cafe? Um, the, the abuser's grandson shows up, and that's where the line about triggering versus uncovering comes from, where you say before, like, that uh, that would have been a time where you would have felt, like, triggered because you saw him as, like, makes perfect sense. You even say that, didn't he, he look similar because he was the same age as uh, his grandfather was when you were six years old? Is that, is that right? Isn't that crazy?
0: Um, I like you fast forward. I mean, he obviously wasn't born. <clears throat> his grandfather, he was the age his grandfather was when his grandfather abused me. Wow. And he looks very, very much like
2: him. Uh, so, but then, okay. Uh, yes. But that wasn't a triggering. It was, use the word uncovering. Can, mm-hmm. can you help us understand the difference of those words? Well, for
0: me, trigger is a pretty violent word, right? It's like a gun going off. It's like an. Ex- yeah. And I don't want to feel like that violence and that out out of control. Like if something um, taps into something deeper, that's basically what a trigger is. Like you said, said something and it sets me off. And so now I'm out of control. I'm, you know, just angry or I'm going to run or freeze or flight or fight and all that stuff. And to me, what I've over the years, what I've tried to do is think when that when something like that comes up, You know, and that for younger people who are like listening to this triggers, uncoverings, whatever you want to call them, can happen even just in it can happen in touch. It can happen in, you know, nonverbal stuff, too. It's not like somebody just says something. It can just be in a moment. That's like a flashback kind of feeling. That's the best I can give. Yeah. But the idea is that if it's an uncovering, it's like, oh my gosh, what has that tapped into that I still need to look at? This is a great opportunity. Yeah. A really tender place in me. And that's all that's what I think of it as. Is I try to be gentle with myself and gentle to the other person. Um, you know, to say, oh, we, you know, I got I got I got some more work to do. And that's so wild to me that Things that happened in your body a half a century ago can still um, hold space in your body. That's, you know, I mean, I guess the best way I can say it is like I went to that um, lynching museum. They call it the Legacy Museum in Montgomery by the Mm -hmm. Equal Justice Initiative. And they had these big, um, amazing photographs of what um, black brothers and sisters went through. Years and years and centuries ago, I mean, decades ago. And you could see the welts on their back where they had just been beaten and whipped. And they were just like turning and showing you these huge scars that are going to be there forever. You know, those scars will be there forever. And I think for so many women who've gone through, you know, traumatic sexual abuse, you can't see the scars, but they're there. They're just as big and real as that but we just can't see it. And it doesn't mean you're not a good person. It doesn't mean you're not a successful person. It means those are in your body.
2: So what does it mean to be gentle about those scars, which most of us can't see, but obviously if inside of you, like you, you can't not be aware of them. And so when those are uncovered, you talked about the like, this is an opportunity to use that that language how do you like, how are you gentle with yourself and and see that as an opportunity instead of uh, for me? Like I can only imagine it would just like bring back all these terrible feelings and all the stuff that I've been trying to like grow from. Like, how do you not go there?
0: Well, um, you know, I don't know how real this podcast is and you can cut any of this that you need to, by the way, but I would say that I've been married to my husband for 34 years. I have an amazing husband, Marcus Hammond, beautiful mm-hmm. singer-songwriter. And if if there's anybody in this world that knows where those tender places are or where those uncoverings are, it would be my husband. And for most of, you know, we only dated for about a little bit less than a year when we got married, and I was 24. And so I was very unaware of all the different stuff that was still going on with me. And he said at one point, I think um, probably several years into our marriage, one or two kids into it, he goes, sometimes I feel like your body is a landmine. And Mm -hmm. if something happens, I just, you know, like, ah, freak out. And my beloved walked with me through all that with much gentleness and compassion. And I think that safe space has been as Healing is any way more healing probably than any therapy or any work I could do or any walks I could take is to find somebody that can um, safely walk through that stuff that makes you feel more gentle. Like, I mean, there's there were seasons where it's just like, I can't do this. And then there are seasons where, like, I need to draw to him. I need to draw into him so close. And he's been I mean, he's he's amazing.
2: Hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's like the power of well, to to steal y'all's phrase. I mean, love heals, and it's it, yeah, it's a grace to have that. Um, sadly, not everyone has that, and not everyone experiences that that amazing transformative power of love. Um, I had a book, uh, or uh, I had an author on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, whose book title was um, uh, "The Wisdom of Your Body," and she talked about how like trauma is stored in the body, and it, it just remains there. And like I hear your testimony and I hear your story and like it, it says the same thing. Um, one of the stories you talk about about being in the woods, which, of course, anyone knows you, they know you love the woods. Um, and uh, you're like Justin like you're a man of the woods, but like for you, you're a, a, a woman of the woods. Um, you tell a story of burrows in trees. Am I saying the word right? I don't know Burls. if Burrows. Burrows. I feel like you, when you say it, it sounds like, oh, that person's been in the woods. When I say it, it's like, yeah, you're a fake. Um, <laughs> say it again, burls? Burls. Yeah, I've never heard that word before. Um, but like it's, it's a part of the tree that's experienced trauma. The, the tree grows around it, and that part of the tree is extremely valuable to make stuff from. Am I getting this right? Because, again, me talking about woods like, doesn't seem very natural. You gotta keep going. You're doing good. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, okay. I just again. Come like, on, Luke, some reason, you got this. Thank you. I needed that. Like our video is still not up. Um you missed a lot. Like I I was taking a drink and the water splashed in my face and then I dropped my pen. I can't see use my- anything. This
0: is this, hard.
2: This is really heartbreaking. You just before the podcast you were like, Oh well, this is so fancy and it's not. Um because it's not working for you. But um anyway, uh so I see like I'm imagining your face is affirming me on. But okay, b- b- Burls, like i f- <sighs> I feel like a fake when I say burls, burls are, are like a witness in nature of, of almost like nature saying there is trauma that you experience, but beauty can grow out of it. Is that fair? Yes. Okay.
0: Yes. And here's what the thing is that I've been thinking about while we were talking, cause we're talking about a lot of different pieces of the book, but the overall thing, and you were talking about like this podcast had this wisdom and, um, Brene Brown had this wisdom and there's all these wisdoms going around we have to have these three things in order to grow and move and one of them is basically get physical use your hands that we gain knowledge through our body. Yeah. And two weeks ago I was up in the woods <laughs> in nice. Oaxaca and how this was passed down to them and what it's taught them about healing and their community and I was like that's the whole thing with all of this stuff we know it already like you can get a yeah. you can get a very Expensive, you know, um, package from Stanford that's going to tell you basically the same thing that the women up in the woods in Oaxaca, Mexico, can tell you. And mm-hmm. I don't think we need more self-help books. I don't think we need to think that there is some secret formula that everybody knows but you and I, Luke, and we have to figure it out. I mm-hmm. really think this whole idea is about all of us being more practically divine that's why I wrote it because it's like I just want us to practice it I want us to be practical I want us to be more appreciative of our own divine nature and your divine nature that's 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 really what I want out of this you know journey of writing and I hope when people read it they feel like grounded and challenged and inspired to see that in themselves too like you like you already got yeah. everything you need to make this journey, you already know mm. it's in your hands, it's in your body, it's in your head, you know all these gifts that were you are endowed with to make it.
2: Yeah, it, it's almost like in the the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gives the Beatitudes, he's he's blessing the people who don't feel like they have a blessing. Like Peterson's translation of "Blessed are the poor in spirit" is, uh, uh, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Because when there's less of you, there's more room for God and, and God's rule. It's almost like saying, like, you've already got it. Like, y- you have God, and so you have the blessing already. I- in the book, you talk about the idea of, um, of uh, like, this divine thing is already inside of you. You said that—here's a line from the book. There is no secret to finding the divine in our lives. It's just practice and practicality. It's just, it's just right in front of you. Like, there, you don't need to read some book with the three C's in it. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, I guess and, and, wanna- and plus for most of us, you know, it's hard to remember three C's anyway in a row with all that's going on and all the noise in this world. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that we can be right where we are. You can be right where you are. I can be right where I am. Mm-hmm. We don't have to wait for something else. We don't have to wait till lose 10 pounds. I'm talking about me, not you. Um, we don't have to wait till our kids go off to college. I'm talking about you, not me. We don't have to wait until you know, um, we get the promotion or our heart's not broken. But what we have to do is say, I am right where I am. And I'm going to feel God's presence and love right here. And it's going to help me see my past a little clearer and hopefully help me take the next small step in the direction that I feel called to go.
2: Yeah. You use the language of, uh, signs like there's some sweet signs that point us to the vine along the broken and messed up road. I love that that language of like there's signs around you. Uh, Tom Wright uses the language of, of like signposts, these are things that are like pointing you. It's, it's beauty, it's justice, it's like all these things that we know transcend like what's around us, but it's pointing like it, it's already in front of us. And so, as I'm reading that quote, some sweet signs point out divine. Uh, along the broken and messed up road. Uh, speaking of your husband, whenever you use the phrase, uh, the broken road, which you use at least twice in the book, do you have to give royalties to your husband for that song he wrote?
0: No, uh, that's why I married him. So I don't have to pay those comments. Kind of, I can't afford that.
2: That's smart. Yeah, that's really I mean, good.
0: no, I probably gave him the term, God bless the broken road first. I probably said mm. it before he did. And maybe he should be paying me royalties. Does anybody ever think of that?
2: Well, I feel like maybe you should get a songwriter credit. That's yes. what I'm saying. Where's that's my what Grammys?
0: What I'm asking.
2: Where's those rascals when you need them? I, I, the,
0: Out in the flats.
2: Flats. That's, that's where it was. Yep. God bless <laughs> you for going there. Okay. I got a question for you. Okay. Would you rather make a rosary or pray a rosary?
0: Yeah. That is the easy one because obviously you cheated. You know the answer. You read the book. <laughs>
2: Okay. Well, go with me. I'm not done yet. Like this, there's a string of questions all built together. So
0: of course, I would much rather make a rosary than pray a rosary.
2: Okay. Do you want to perpetuate or tear down the barrier between the sacred and the profane?
0: Tear it down, brother. Tear it down.
2: Okay. Now I've got you in a trap. You are a priest... And uh, with you fancy Episcopalians, like Eucharist is a big deal. Like it is it's centerpiece of your gathering as it is for the Church of Christ, but you guys have robes and a lot cooler stuff and it's fancier. Um, as my daughter used to say years ago, the Oscopalians are just fancier than us, which, true statement.
0: True statement. Okay. Hey, if we've... you come preach at Vanderbilt, I'll put you in a robe.
2: Okay. And I'll put,
0: this... I'll put a little crown on your forehead. You'll look amazing.
2: Okay. So I've got like the the cast is it a casket i feel like that's the wrong word cassock yes it's really close to cas
0: no it's not close to a casket
2: cassock it's it's it sounds very similar and so the episcopalians across the street when i preached over there they let me wear one of those but i want like the like i I don't want like just all like the plain white stuff like that's for like jvs like i want the varsity like cool colors you want the no
0: no you don't want the cool colors you want lace and what you're thinking of is to put a Chazable over your cassock.
2: Wow. Yes, um, that sounds uncomfortable. Um, no,
0: it's like it depends if it's winter or summer.
2: Okay, so uh, next time I'm in Nashville, I'll come to the chapel at Vanderbilt, and uh, you'll give me the fancy clothes. Um, I'll, I'll take my shoes off because I know that's your thing, and uh,
0: that's my jam. I've got
2: yeah. One of the <laughs> uh, one of the people I work with, like her jam is like she takes her shoes off when she's leading us, and so we're like, okay, I like, I'm I'm down with that now. Um, so I'm there. We uh, we experienced the Eucharist. Um, When you, as a person who's like tearing down the sacred and profane, how do you understand Eucharist when uh, we're also trying to see the divine in everything, but like in the Eucharist, it's kind of like held up as something even more sacred for many. How do we understand that?
0: So for me, I just think of things as both sacraments and sacramental. Like, Mm -hmm. you know how like you take a bath and you can take a bath sacramentally, but you're not doing the sacrament of baptism every time you bathe, necessarily, in the same way.
2: Mm.
0: That doesn't mean there's not rebirth and cleansing every time you take a bath. But sometimes there's intention, which is why I keep saying intention, intention, intention. When you go down into the water that one time with a special touch, they call it baptism. And I think that's how I see it. I think I eat bread sacramentally with intention and thanksgiving. That's why we say prayers before meals. But sometimes we break this bread and we do it in a way that's called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or the Mass. And we do it with this intention of it's a special, special time that um, a community does this work together and we take a little piece and we feel full.
2: Yeah.
0: But otherwise it would be ridiculous if you did like, you know, invited four friends over to your, let's say 10 friends over to your house for a meal. And you had, you know, a small loaf of bread and you broke it and you gave everybody a little piece and go, there you go.
2: <laughs> hmm.
0: They wouldn't be
1: happy.
2: No, they wouldn't be happy at all. I like that. You first assumed like, Luke probably doesn't have 10 friends. So I'll say four, but then you're like, ah, we'll just pretend he has 10 friends. Um, yeah, you're not that's wrong, where I probably. went with that. That's. I, well, it's, I, it's COVID not COVID my-
0: times. Who has 10 friends? No one, no one.
2: Yeah, I just blame it on COVID. That I don't have many friends. That's because of COVID. <laughs> that's why I don't have many friends. Uh, I, I like the line that, like, we see the sacred in the bread that's broken on Sunday, so that we can also see the sacredness in all bread. And I think, like, it's not all the same, but I think there is a like your, to use our uh, friend Ian Cron's language, like the sacramental imagination, like to, to see mm. the the beauty of like the transcendent in all things. I think that's a a beautiful call for for all of us. Um, And I think it's always
0: about whatever is work. I mean, whatever, I mean, at least in my mind to use a sacrament. It has to be for the purpose of healing. Mm -hmm. And somehow if I break this bread and offer it with intention and prayer to you, it would be a healing act. And that's, I mean, I feel like all of, all of it has to point towards the sacrament, which is the sacrament of healing which we get in baptism, which we get in marriage, which we get in communion, which we get in burials.
2: Tell me more about burials. Like I I was completely along for the ride, and then we got to burials.
0: Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's the whole idea that that's the last step of this healing journey is back to God, right? Back to home. Yeah. And, I mean, it's hard to see it that way, but that's why I think we make burials, you know, a ritual thing, to honor because we're offering our whole selves back to God.
2: Mm-hmm. You you had uh, a person who was trying to get together to talk to you about heaven, and uh, you wisely blew them off. And your line is like, I've never been there, so I don't really know exactly what it's like, which um, I feel like that's exactly what you want from your priest. Like, oh, okay, that's it. Um, to be honest, like I've used a very similar line myself. Um, what if someone actually nailed you down and you had to get coffee or tea with them by the way do you watch Ted Lasso? yes
0: how yes, do you I feel do. about his
2: disrespect for tea?
0: yeah I mean I just feel like that's just perfect for the whole idea of why Americans are seen with such disdain across the world
1: hmm
2: yeah that's good Do you remember that time uh, I told you about someone who said they didn't believe in essential oils and your line back was how do you not believe in lavender?
0: yes yeah
2: a good line i like that a lot okay uh ted lasso doesn't believe in tea but say you got together with this person who wants to know if they should believe in the afterlife and you're drinking tea um what do you tell them about uh what heaven is especially if if we believe like it is like burial is the last ritual prepares us for our ultimate healing
0: yeah i think what i've learned over the years is the first thing is not about telling somebody what i believe but about you know the openness to sit down with somebody, share a cup of tea and begin by listening because Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, whoever's asking you that question is in the midst of a crisis. And I think the first thing I would want to do is listen to, um, listen to the stories about the people that they are grieving or about their own life. They're grieving, you know, they've gotten a diagnosis and they're grieving or, They're just in divinity school and they're wondering or whatever the story is. You need context for those beautiful conversations. And then the invitation might be there for us to talk about what it is we've learned from scriptures, what we've learned from our study and what we've learned from our own experience. And maybe God willing, both of us would come out with a new idea.
2: Yeah. I've heard it said that uh, all theology is autobiography. And I think a lot of times in the questions, I've experienced a similar uh, thing that you have, which has led you to that answer is when people want to know about heaven, they typically want to know about a person and they want to know about a loss that they're experiencing. One of the things that uh, I really love about your work is I'm an Enneagram seven, and like the sad parts of life and the painful parts of life, I don't naturally reside in those very easily. And like, because the workers, people
0: are weak, who do I'm just.
2: Kidding. I like guys. Be creative. You can reframe this. Like you can make this a pot. Like let's make this a game. Like your friend make Reba.
0: lemonade. Have you not read? Yes.
2: Yes. When life hands you lemons, make lemonade and then add tequila, and then you can make it almost like a margarita. Like that's what you should do. That's in the Bible yes. somewhere. Yes. Um, but you are kind of in like you live in some of like the hardest parts of the world. Um, and you deal with some of them, like the most painful realities that, uh, unfortunately far too many people experience. And when I'm thinking of like an eschatology that would have to grow out of that for me, it would almost be like, yes, I, I know that this seems like it's, um, uh, like it's an ins- <sighs> like, it, it's an, uh, like unimaginable situation that like, there's not going to be a happy ending in this age. And like the age to come where there's the restoration of all things and, and the redemption of all things. Like that seems to me like it would, like that hope in me would grow the more I lived in like the day-to-day situations of like abuse and, and trafficking and like all the heartbreak. Has that been your experience or am I just making this up? No,
0: no, no. It's not been my experience. I want to say that really, like I do live in those spaces. And there is also when you are with a group of women sitting together, we laugh as much as we cry. You know, I am not in the room when the trauma is there. I am in the room when there is that beginning pieces of saying, I need to find a way out. I need to figure out a new way to live, whatever those things are. And, you know, there's a lot of humor. Like, because you have such a good sense of humor, Luke, you would fit in really well to those spaces because it is like, it is so hard. And we cried this morning with someone who had gone through a terrible loss. And we also got to laugh with somebody who has, um, you know, gotten a new set of teeth and is smiling to beat the band and celebrate the birth of a new child for one of the graduates or a marriage of one of the graduates, along with some of the really hard stuff. So like when I was up in the hills in Oaxaca a couple weeks ago, you know, we... We it was a four hour bus ride up there with a woman that's running the cooperative who's gone through some beautiful stuff. And she's amazing. By the end of it, we were laughing up, up this mountainside where it was very steep and kind of scary. And she was going to humor, too. And I think you find a lot of people with really good sense of humor who are willing to be in that space. So it's fun as well as heartbreaking.
2: Yeah.
0: You would love it.
2: I've been to your place. Like I I No, I, I, love I mean like
0: you- out on these like really like in the refugee camp, in the asylum seeking camp, in the some of the poor parts of the whole globe. It, like sitting in that space and then somebody's like made you a tortilla and cheese and you sit there for a few hours. There's no time is different. And you do yeah. share stories and you talk and you learn and you laugh, you know, and you're humbled. I mean, there was a family we were visiting where he had been in the U.S., the father years ago, and then, you know, was deported. And what that meant for his family and how his daughter's taking up the mantle of the potter and they're building this house brick by brick. I mean, it's kind of unbelievably inspiring, not just happy or sad, but just like I want to be more like this family. I really want mm. to be more like this family.
2: Okay. I trust you because I want to be more like you. And if you don't be more like them, then it's like that imitate <laughs> me as I imitate Christ thing. So I'm on, can, I'm on board. Well, can
0: you imagine with, how proud you would be? Seriously. If you built your house yourself. I,
2: like I, I recently like changed the light and I was really proud of myself. So <laughs> yeah, like I can imagine no I really can, but I like that concept, yeah, I get it, yeah, that's fair, um Beckham this yes. has been fun This has been fun. I hope that this has helped bring some healing uh to the animus in your heart towards podcasters in general, and um you know i I feel like maybe this helped like build a bridge
0: hey, Luke, I really do want you to preach when you come to Nashville, and I do want to say to your podcast listeners that. I love Luke's podcast. He has one of the best podcasts there is. There's no animosity towards podcasters in general, (laughs) just some specifically that I can't mention online. Furthermore, I'd like to say if anybody, if you've heard anything in this podcast and you want to reach out to me directly, you can direct message me on Instagram, Becca Stevens. If you are starting to look around with the supply chains being what they are for your Christmas presents, please go to thistlefarms.org. And buy a candle for somebody who might need a little light.
2: That's that's great. I I love that. Um, that guy, I feel like he did a great job to show up right there. That was perfect. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. Oh yeah, buy
0: the book, Practically Divine. I forgot to I forgot <laughs> that. Damn it. Hey, this is. I was, so sad that I haven't seen you the whole time.
2: I don't know. We're gonna hang up here, and like I bet the video is gonna come right back on. Sad. Um, and it's. It is. I'm really proud of you. You went the whole podcast to the very end without using your your potty mouth, and so I'm really proud of you for making it this far.
0: That's because I'm getting better.
2: Love heals. That's hey, why. but
0: I will say the lady that was with me in Mexico. This is. Are we done recording?
2: Sh- should I hit stop? Because you should definitely be... hit stop. Recording. Okay. All right. Okay. Stop me recording. Okay.